Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be diving into the value of wine competitions. And our guest is Doug Frost, Master of Wine and Master Sommelier, and the owner and founder of Ecolands Winery. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. I was hoping for those who may not know you that listen to our podcast, that if you could give Peter and I and them a brief overview of your background and how you're affiliated with the Pinnacle Wine Awards. Well, I've been a master sommelier and a master of wine for, gosh, over a quarter century. I'm so old, but I come out of the restaurant business and have been in the wine business my entire career in the restaurants and doing other things like retail and import and wholesale and even have a winery now based in Walla Walla, Washington. So I've kind of worn all the hats I can possibly wear, which I think is one of the reasons I got through the Master of Wine program, at least, because it's so global and all-consuming. And I think my restaurant background is what got me through the Master Sommelier program. So there's a small number of us who have gotten through both. But usually I tell people that's because there's a small number of people who would bother to take both. Normally, you get one, you're good. But I have deep insecurity, I think is what it comes down to, deep and anxious insecurity. And how did you become affiliated with the Pinnacle Wine Awards? Well, Jeannie Cholie and I have been friends for a long time. I knew Jeannie as she was going through the Master of Wine program. And when she decided to create or co-create the Pinnacle Wine Awards, she reached out to me and asked me you know, what I thought. And I was pretty gung-ho. The part of it that really attracted me the most was that it's an international award. Of course, many will attempt to be international in scope, and I've been involved in other wine awards that certainly have that ambition. But I feel like in terms of the group of judges that Jeannie was able to wrangle together, I felt very much like this was going to be truly international in scope, really not in some fashion dominated by one particular viewpoint, whether that is European or North American or Asian or Oceanic or what have you. It really is that all of these different regions are allowed to provide their input. And so we end up with what I hope is a really genuinely global view of what is happening in the wine world everywhere, not just in the sort of dominant regions of Bordeaux and Burgundy. And we'll dive into a lot more of the Pinnacle Wine Awards and what makes it special a little later. And it's happening in Singapore in late October of this year. But we'd love to explore the purpose and context of wine competitions broadly. Could you give us a brief history of what wine competitions are and why they exist? Well, certainly. It's a giant question because there's a different answer for every country and every wine industry. But we can say, broadly speaking, from the 19th century onward, there was always an attempt to describe what was happening in a particular region, whether it is the famous Coxveray book of Bordeaux that dates back to the mid-19th century, or the famous 1855 classification of Bordeaux that still has dominance today in the marketplace, i.e. first growths are the best in Bordeaux, second growths are the second best, on and on and on. So there's been various and sundry ways for people to codify or create a hierarchy 
of wine. But when we go outside the dominant areas of, let's say, Bordeaux or Burgundy, where Burgundy has classified its vineyards for centuries, i.e. Grand Cru is the best, Premier Cru is the second best, village level is, if you will, the third best. When we get outside of those dominant regions, then suddenly, particularly in the New World, people felt the need to define what they thought best represented their area so that people outside that area would know this is the best, this is the second best, on and on. If only that people wanted to compete with each other and have that ability to boast. So when we look at wine competitions, both the US and Australia focused early on as their wine industries got their starts. And both wine industries can talk about the 19th century, but we're really talking about the 1950s and 1960s as people begin to say, our wines are worthy of attention. How can we prove that? Let's do a competition. So the famous Paris tasting in the 70s in which a group of Napa Valley wineries bested some first and second growth Bordeaux, that's the sort of wine competition that people were beginning to put together. But even, as I say before that, in the 50s and 60s, people would round up a lot of wines from a particular area and then blind taste them. And people would be able to say, well, I won that particular tasting or I won a particular award at that tasting. So it takes us into the 80s and 90s when the wine industry comes into full bloom, frankly, around the world when new world wineries are competing with old world wine regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and Germany and such. And people are continuing and in fact growing this whole wine competition category because it's a good way to communicate to people. Whereas if we go back to the 60s, there's just a couple of dozen wineries in Napa Valley. Now with a thousand wineries in Napa Valley, people want to pit them against each other, let's say, and find out who gets to call themselves the best. So lots of different regions have done that. And individual regions continue often to do this, whether it's Sonoma or whether a smaller area within Australia or even in places like South Africa and South America. So the idea of doing an international competition in which theoretically every single wine region has an opportunity to compete, that is really the genesis of the Pinnacle Wine Awards and the idea, the ambition behind it to say, we look at every single wine region, we give each of them an equal spot on the stage, or at least an equal opportunity to have a spot on the stage. And then we try to tell people, these, in the opinion of these many dozens of top flight judges, masters of wine, masters sommeliers, wine writers, etc., these represent the pinnacle, if you will, of what is available in each of these classic and new regions. So the Pinnacle Wine Awards is trying to be a new competition that will be important on a global stage. What are the other wine competitions that are important and influential today? Because there are other ones like Decanter has their World Wine Awards. I know the San Francisco Chronicle locally does some. There's a bazillion of them. Which ones are actually important and relevant today? I honestly believe that a number of them are highly relevant, but it depends upon which area they're trying to focus upon. In other words, I look at, let's say, the Sonoma County Fair, or I look at the Decanter Wine Awards. And the Sonoma County Fair is a great way to decide what's important in Sonoma County itself. That's all you're going to learn from that. And there's going to be critical wineries that are left aside from that. The same with, let's say, the Central Coast Wine Competition and on and on. Decanter is, I think, definitely has the sort of large ambition of looking at wines from around the world. 
However, the decanter wine awards, of course, are dependent upon who bothers to submit wines. And if you don't submit wines, then you're not going to be included. And so it is a representation of the best of those wines that are submitted. And it is, of course, like all competitions, dependent upon the quality of the judges. And I think the quality of the judges with the canter is certainly high. We tried to, and our goal was to separate ourselves out by utilizing judges at what we regard as the highest level that we possibly could. As I say, primarily masters of wine, master sommeliers, wine writers with tremendous experience across the board, not just experience in one particular area. If many top wineries don't submit wines to wine competitions, does that make the relevance of them different? I think it's a fair question, and I think it's a fair criticism of those competitions. That's not to say that they don't serve a purpose. They serve a tremendous purpose, in my view, because they tell you about wineries you probably haven't heard about yet, but they don't necessarily tell you how those wineries would compare to often wineries that already have a proven track record. Therefore, they're not likely to submit their wines to a wine competition. In fact, generally speaking, have policies that negate the very idea of being in a wine competition. Because as wineries have often expressed to me, I've been involved in wine competitions for 35, 40 years. They often say, look, I have nothing to gain and everything to lose. I'm already famous. I'm already well-known. Everybody already loves my wine. Now I stick my wine in a wine competition and I get a bronze and some guy nobody's heard of gets a gold. Guess what that does for me? So that is the Achilles heel of a typical wine competition. The other being it's only as good as its judges. And having organized competitions for many years, as I say, I'm keenly aware of what happens when you have a weak judge amongst the judging panels. It will impact your results for sure. What makes a wine competition more successful than others in terms of their relevance? What are the keys to making a meaningful wine competition? You mentioned judges already. Yeah, I certainly believe that the quality of judge is first and foremost what's going to make a wine competition relevant to those who want to learn from that wine competition. But I also think that a wine competition needs to know what its purpose is because that helps inform the judges as to what they're looking for. So I come back to, let's say, the Jefferson competition is one that I've run for 25 years, and its purpose is to focus upon wines from around the United States and to control the number of wines that can come from any one particular region. To provide better data is to say, in most competitions, there will be, let's say, 2,500 wines. And almost 2,000 of them come from California if this competition is in the United States. Guess who's likely to win the awards? So I have always argued, I'm not sure how relevant that information is because it wasn't necessarily a fair comparison of wines from Oregon or Washington or Virginia or Michigan or New York or Texas or Colorado or wherever. And so I certainly would argue numerically, often it's misleading, but secondarily, there is something that we call a house palette. It's a problem that any winemaker has. It's a problem that judges have. To explain, I used to put together a sort of amateur tasting, but amongst some really good tasters in Kansas City, where I live. And we would put together, let's say, 36 white burgundies. And we'd throw into the 36 white burgundies, let's say, three wines from California, all highly rated. And the three wines from California would just get trashed in the tasting because they were very different in structure and style and 
body and weight than those white burgundies. And then just to prove a point, about six months later, I would then do 36 top flight California Chardonnays. And I'd take the three top winning wines from the white burgundy tasting and throw them in the middle of that tasting. And I wouldn't say they got trashed, but they would be overlooked because stylistically they were out of bounds. They were something unusual within it. So when you try to get people to compare a lot of different regions together, you darn well have to figure out how to make the proportions of each fair. I hope that makes sense. But it's one of the challenges you have when you're organizing a wine competition is how can I make sure that every flight is not dominated by a particular style? Because inevitably, judges are going to find themselves drawn to that style and believe if they're, say, tasting 24 Chardonnays, believe that because 20 of those 24 Chardonnays are big and rich and buttery, that wine that is much more elegant has much less of that buttery character to it is not a very good wine. It just isn't going to stand out there. So it's one of those tricky things. And what happens with the Pinnacle Wine Awards is each judge is frankly asked to draw upon their experience, to draw upon what they've had over the last year, to look upon their experience and the wines that they've had over the past several years. And then we give them a specific vintage and say, Of everything that you've had, and you've had, in most cases, judges have had five or 10,000 wines a year, what are the wines that stood out for you? And then we basically create a matrix based on that feedback and start to develop an idea of who do we think and in a particular vintage and which wines from that individual winery should we be asking people to judge? And so the Pinnacle Wine Awards is, to some degree, an intellectual exercise in which people are asked to draw upon their experience over the last several years of any particular vintage and any particular winery. In that regard, you're essentially trying to transcend like a regional tasting and kind of give it almost stylistically a flight of wines. You could argue in your same example that you could choose an Oregon Chardonnay that would be maybe difficult in a lineup to identify of Burgundies if you chose specific producers that were making in a certain way. And I'm wondering you're trying to reduce the impact of the region and kind of going in terms of what is the actual output of the wine, the style of the wine and match those. So that's a more, the differences between the actual wines are more nuanced. So you can actually then pick apart and assess them fairly. I think what you're describing is part of the idea of it, but the awards themselves are then classified regionally. So we're going to say, let's say, what's the best Bordeaux that you've had in the last three to five years, whatever period of time from, let's say, the 2010 vintage. And now we've got 12 years of experience with the 2010 vintage. And we can actually ask people, over those 12 years, we had one idea right when the wines came out. But 12 years later, we've got a pretty good data set. Most of us have had many of those wines many times. Now we can suddenly say, well, what we thought early on didn't necessarily turn out to be true. And the same could be done with Burgundy, which is something we do with both red and white Burgundy. The same can be done with North American Chardonnay. North American, Cabernet-based wines, South African wines, you get the idea. We then say, all right, let's throw the door open. Let's focus on a vintage that's highly regarded, but then draw upon your experience over the last several years. What were the wines that just absolutely stand out now from a specific vintage? And then we assign a specific vintage. So as I say, it's not going to be any Bordeaux that you've had. It's going to be, tell us about the 2009s. We know so much more about them now than we did when they came out. Okay, so I'm curious on who is the main 
because if you're basically choosing wines that are already not widely for sale, like sure, they're still available in some markets, but it's not like it's initial release prices anymore. Who is the target audience for the results of the wine competition? Is that to the consumer? Is that to trade? Is that for collectors? Is that for people wine curious? I think you're certainly right. And I think that we are dealing with that upper echelon of wines when we're talking about classic regions like Bordeaux and Burgundy and perhaps Piemonte with Barolo and Barbaresco. But it's also true that these days there are wines that are not as bloody expensive that come from some of the regions that aren't as well known. So price points vary quite a bit. There's no question about that. But to your point, I think we are talking about wines often that are mature. So we are speaking to collectors, speaking to people who are comfortable enough around wine that the idea of seeking out a wine that's 10 years old doesn't intimidate them. They know how to find it. Certainly, we're talking to consumers that know how to navigate the international wine market or at least have an idea how to do so. So it's one of the benefits, I suppose, of being this international group of tasters. But it's definitely one of the challenges. What is its relevance to somebody who's sitting in Kansas City? Like I said, where I live, I can probably count on my fingers and toes the number of people who are going to read the outcome and say, I can go find those wines. But those people do exist. And it does, if you will, finally set a metric to say, after all these years, here's kind of the final judgment about what we think about a classic vintage from a classic region or a great vintage from a new and upcoming region. So as we mentioned earlier, sometimes getting the top wineries or the top wines of a region included into a tasting or a competition like this can be a little bit of a challenge. What is the value that a wine competition offers to a winery that is in a region? A winery can benefit in a competition because their wines aren't well-known yet or the quality of their wine isn't necessarily well-known yet. So there's a direct benefit when suddenly they do well in one of these competitions. On the other hand, a winery certainly takes a risk when they send their wines in that they're not going to get a great score or not going to receive a high medal. And if that winery is already well-known for high quality, that may be a risk they're not willing to bear. The Pinnacle Wine Awards, if you will, because we're not asking wineries to submit wines, in fact, we're not really allowing them to demur and we're not allowing them to step aside. We're asking people who have consumed their wines, probably visited many of these wineries to actually weigh in. And if it were just the viewpoint of one or two or three or four wine judges, it might not be a fair assessment. But because we have many dozens of wine judges that have been tasting so many wines for so long, we feel like we're actually getting a fair representation of what happens in any particular vintage or any particular region. And in terms of the consumer side, the value there in terms of them interpreting the results of a wine competition, what is that value for consumers? I hope that consumers understand what the purpose of the Pinnacle Wine Awards is. And that is to say, okay, in any specific vintage from particular area, this is the wine you should get if you really want to taste the best this region, this grape, and this vintage can offer. On the other hand, I think what's really valuable there is that you see certain wineries or certain wine regions excel. And because you can see that as a pattern over several years with the Pinnacle Wine Awards, it starts to create, I think, a certainty that this is a winery or This is a vintage that really represents 
the top, the pinnacle, the very best that this place can offer. So it hopefully directs the consumer to specific wineries or it directs the consumer to specific vintages so that they know, look, if you're going to try to find what's really best about this particular region, seek out this winery. Maybe it'll be in a different vintage, but now you know this winery seems to excel against all the others in top vintages. Or conversely, you're not going to find this winery or when you do, it costs you several hundred dollars and you don't want to do that. But now you've seen that all these judges think this vintage is a vintage worth seeking out. Great. I can't buy that particular winery, but this particular vintage seems to be the one all these men and women went nuts over. I guess I better try to find some wines from that vintage and see if I can participate in this exercise in some measure. So it sounds like the Pinnacle Awards are a little different, but when you talked about regular wine competitions having a downside for wineries submitting and they don't get awarded and whatnot, isn't that similar to if a winery submits to a wine magazine or wine critic, yet I don't see wineries not submitting to critics or to magazines because I think it's important for them reputationally to be rated and have there, but that hasn't translated into wine competitions. How does that differ between like a critic versus a competition? I think you're making an accurate observation. In some cases, people will look at a wine competition and say, well, there's no expectation that I'm there. So I'll just step aside and then I don't really have to risk that my wines aren't going to show that well. As opposed to if you're in the marketplace, somebody's going to say, what has X magazine said about your wines? Because they know X magazine is tasting all of the wines from that region. But the same thing does happen in particular areas. I use the Sonoma County Fair example again, or certainly there are other such awards where everybody in that region is going to say, I want to be the best. I want to show you guys that I bested you. So last year I was involved in Pigs and Pinot tasting as one of the judges. And the bragging rights for the top Pinot in that are pretty significant. The other thing that I hoped that people understood from that, because certainly only one winery got to be selected as the best of that competition, was most of the wines that were in that final draw out of several hundred wines that were considered for the top wine were from the 2019 vintage. So I was hoping that people would read the tea leaves and say, wow, I guess Pinot Noir in 2019 is pretty damn good. Maybe I should just start finding some 2019 Pinots and maybe I can't have this particular Pinot, but damn it, I guess they're all pretty good, or at least most of them are pretty good. So yeah, I think there's information to be gained from it, but I will allow exactly as you say that people feel like they have to show up for certain magazines, but they don't have to show up for every single competition unless it's a competition that their neighbors are challenging them to show up in. Well, in the vintage point that I think a lot of wine magazines cover that effectively as well, talking about how good certain vintages are and things of that nature. I'm not sure there's a difference there. But one of the other things I think is interesting is that there seems to be lots of local competitions or there's still tons of them out there where it seems like every winery says they've got 100 gold medals or whatnot. And <laughs> what's the relevance of that to the consumer anymore? Well, I think one always has to take all of this information, all of the awards and such with a grain of salt. It is to me a sort of preponderance of success that you're looking for. 
in other words, yeah, there's enough competitions out there that somebody can talk about the awards that they've won and you wonder how relevant it is, but then look for that individual competition. In other words, who are they competing against? And so in the Sonoma County Fair, to go back to that example, they're competing against everybody in Sonoma County who joins in, who sends their wines. That's not everybody. Certainly some well-known names are not going to show up with that because, again, they don't see the risk-reward ratio working out for them. With the Pinnacle Wine Awards, nobody can walk away because we're going to say every wine out there is significant. One other point I'll make, and I don't want to disagree with you on your point about the relevance of the vintage, but I will say that I think the press, because they're always eager to be the first to speak about a vintage, notoriously gets vintages wrong. They often, I think the best example I can come up with for that is the 2011 red wines from Northern California that the industry, well, I should say from the West Coast in general, that the media roundly panned the wines. And it was understandable because it was a cool, wet, difficult vintage. And because also there's a dynamic that is a little bit odd, but to explain, the media is always in a hurry to tell people about the vintage because it's like the 24-hour news cycle. You want to be the first to bring something up. Do you bother to vet its reality? Unfortunately, in our political sphere today, unfortunately, often not. People just come out with some bullshit. And because they wanted to be first to say it, truth be damned, to me, the 2011s, because the media will taste the first wines released, and by its very nature, the very first wines released are the cheapest, are the least meritorious wines, the least likely to age. Those wines are often released very early on in their cycle. And in a vintage like 2011, those were pretty bad wines. But those people who are willing to hang on, let their grapes hang out there far longer than they really should have done if they were reasonably rational persons who were making smart economic decisions. Instead, they were the kind of people who were like, damn the torpedoes, I'm going to try to make something out of this. And many of them were rewarded with stunning wines. Unusual wines, agreed, but stunning wines. And yet the media hung on to, not surprisingly, their story that 2011 sucks. Well, it was based upon a small data set. 1989 is another case in point. Some of those 1989 California cabs turned out to be just really pretty wines. And they were roundly criticized at the time because the first 89s to show up on shelves were not particularly good. So not to belabor the point, but I did. So forgive me. I just think that if you're a smart consumer, you'll take information from a variety of sources and make an informed decision about which vintages, which wineries, even which grapes in which places ought to be your focus as drinker and as a buyer. It seems like Champagne's another region where critics kind of judge based on like the early, how did Chardonnay do in this vintage versus holistic? Oh, yeah. Oh, Champagne's the biggest minefield of them all because- It's so big too. Yeah, well, and you don't necessarily, particularly, let's say we go back to the 2000 vintage, there is a nasty little secret about Champagne that a Champagne house is allowed to go out and buy somebody else's Champagne and finish it with their dosage of sugar, as most do, not all do, but most do, and then slap their label on it. And nowhere on that label do they have to tell you that this is not actually a wine they make. And so you'll see this inconsistency in vintages like 2000, where the sales so outstripped production that people started running around buying wine from other people. And so there's that. And then secondarily, in Champagne, often 
the non-vintage wines could use a bit of time, those multi-vintage or non-vintage blends, however you want to describe them. And so people will taste them early on and they're not really kind of complete yet. Particularly a vintage like 2012 comes to mind where if you tasted those early on, you probably kind of went, well, these are supposed to be great, but I'm waiting for the angels to start singing. The angels are only now starting to sing, which is why the Pinnacle Wine Awards focuses upon these top vintages and says, okay, now that they're actually getting to a point where they have some maturity to them, what really tastes great? You know, what actually didn't turn out so great? It's the damnedest thing, you know, but that's the thing about wine is wine always goes in some direction, but it doesn't go in only one direction. If we were talking about milk, milk goes in only one direction. It gets worse, but wine can get better, then it kind of gets dumb, and then it gets better again, and then it's kind of, and hopefully it gets really glorious before it just falls off a cliff. And those cycles can take decades or they can just take a few years. One of the points you made earlier on was about in the history of wine competitions that I thought was interesting. I wanted to bring it back for a second. How much do you think the rise of wine competitions is tied to new world wines coming on the scene or the lack of classification systems in some historic countries where maybe they were less focused? So meaning like there are areas where the classification system wasn't around yet or wasn't as evolved. Yeah, I think you're 100% accurate, correct on that. I think that really is it. It's the new world regions that are attempting to prove to people that their wines have value and pertinence in the larger international market. The only way they can prove that is by going through this blind tasting gauntlet of the competition. So Australia was early on to that process. Certainly California was early on to that process. And it's seemingly every other wine region around the world has, if they see the need to announce themselves, need to go through that process as well. In terms of Australia as that example, that maybe obviously had some critic scores eventually, but they have all these stickers on the front of their labels as a consumer. I never knew really how to interpret them because there were just so many of them. But it does seem like that that's largely been transcended by the point system and individual critics reviews, as opposed to seeing all those competitions, gold label, gold label, gold label, kind of posted on every bottle like you saw maybe like 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago. I do think that the era of the wine competition often in places like Australia started in the 70s and became very relevant in the 90s and in the aughts and remains relevant often for Australian wine consumers today. I think in the US, that cycle certainly gave way to the individual wine critic who became deeply relevant. But I think that that cycle has turned a little bit. Everything is now available on your smartphone and everybody can quickly look up how much interest there was across a spectrum of not a handful of wine critics, but thousands of people, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people. However, I do want to argue that while the relevance of a single wine critic is overwhelmed these days by how many people decided to do a TikTok dance about a particular wine, I'd really argue that we're still in the era of the sommelier. And by that, I mean sommeliers, to use Robert Joseph's uh, description of why sommeliers are more important today than ever, is to say, yes, of course, the sommelier industry was decimated by the pandemic. But a lot of those people have come back. In many cases, they started handling more than one restaurant. And so they're helping to make buying and selling decisions still to this day. What makes, as Robert Joseph explained very skillfully in a seminar that I sat in in Kuala Lumpur a couple of weeks ago, it is that sommeliers, unlike wine critics, talk to each other. 
they influence each other. They compare notes. They're constantly, if you will, challenging each other as to what is great and what is good and what's most important at any given moment. And this is, if you will, the reflection of the Pinnacle Wine Awards at least tries to embody the same idea that these relevant people, hopefully, are talking about what wines they think are most relevant today. The other secret about sommeliers is wine critics don't sell wine. I mean, they might help sell wine, but sommeliers actually sell wine. The same could be said about retailers, but the Achilles heel to wine critics, just like retailers often, is they don't talk to each other. They really don't compare notes. They're not feeding each other information. And so it's been a goal of mine as I help with the Pinnacle Wine Awards to get sommeliers involved in this as well, because they are people who not only sell wine, they talk to each other all the time and challenge each other for sure. But more than anything, it's just that sheer love of wine that when somebody says, have you had XYZ and I haven't, damn it, I'm going to go find that wine. Because next time we talk, I want to go, I tried it. Well, so you mentioned that the Pitical Awards have a global view and that that's really important. Why is that important, I guess? And does that make it harder then for a consumer who might be in the US like we are or in Europe or someone else to look at it with a little more doubt as to its relevance to them? I think the Pinnacle Wine Awards does challenge people because you're going to see, let's say, a Northern European mindset not dominate as it does, let's say, in certain wine competitions or amongst certain wine critics but have an equal voice to, let's say, an Asian palate or an Oceanic wine critic or a North American wine lover. So there's the good news that you're taking all these viewpoints and you're trying to give them an equal standing within the outcome of this wine award. So that's great. You hope what we actually accomplish. And when we look at the wine judges, when we talk about who's getting invited in and who's not, It's to keep an eye on, do we have appropriate balance? I come back to that idea that every wine competition is only as good as its judges. And is that a balanced set? Or does it just represent one stylistic preference in, let's say, Burgundy or in Tuscany? But I would also say it's possible, therefore, we are shining a light on certain wines that, let's say, North Americans don't necessarily know about. I think back to a couple of years ago when we were definitely trying to shine a light on Lopez de Redia, the iconic, but also to some degree, iconoclastic producer in Rioja. And two years ago, four years ago, when we first did that, I think Lopez de Heredia was not a highly sought after wine in North America. For those of us, particularly in the sommelier set, that was a sort of secret sommelier handshake. You were like, Lopez, you got Lopez Rosado? No way. But it was still possible to buy those wines. Now it's very difficult to find those wines. And I get it. That's one of the weaknesses of any competition that seeks to tell you, this is the very best you can find. That means we're probably talking about wines that are hard to find. I think that's a valuable exercise to do so. And not just from a, let's say, single regional viewpoint like North America, but to say, yeah, but the people who are in Hong Kong also said, you know, we think it's really, really cool this wine too. You guys may not know about it, but we think it's really cool. The look at older wines and the great vintages and wines that are in their maturity, is that effectively like a wine professional version of like a seller tracker rating? Ah, yes. I think it is. I think that seller tracker and the rest of them have been invaluable because they've helped people compare 
their experiences with others. But also, as somebody who's been in the wine industry a long time, I typically don't worry too much about that because I know there's a lot of amateurs who maybe don't have experience with mature wine and maybe don't understand how this wine represents a particular vintage appropriately or maybe not so appropriately. But it's the same idea, if you will, in so much as we tell consumers, we think this vintage represents this area at its highest level. And now we're going to show you who we think those very best people are. And it's not just a dozen critics, but it's many dozens. And so I believe this is the second time the Pinnacle Awards has happened. What were the lessons you learned from the first that have changed and influenced the second one? The Pinnacle Wine Awards did go through the pandemic. And early on in the pandemic, we actually got very close to choosing those awards. So it actually feels more like this is the third time. But in terms of what the public sees, this is the second full set of outcomes and awards. The important part, I think, in making sure that what we're doing is of value to the market is not to bring up the same names over and over again. It is to say, why don't we be a little more demanding of ourselves and make sure we pick some other vintages? And so we have the opportunity to speak other names and to generate interest in other wineries. Otherwise, it's possible that we'll just sit around and tell each other, isn't Petrus great? That doesn't really help anybody. You haven't figured out that Petrus is really good. You probably haven't been paying attention at all. So it's more a matter of, can we challenge ourselves by really asking, what vintage should we be talking about? Let's not just focus on the big names and the big vintages. Let's see what vintages are out there that maybe we need to direct people's attentions towards that maybe allow other wineries to show their best. I know that sounds sort of vague, But it is part of the process when we talk about, okay, what are we going to do next? Otherwise, we're just going to say the same names over and over again. Let's challenge ourselves. Let's come up with some other ideas here in terms of what we're talking about. So it's a continuous challenge. And you mentioned earlier that most wine competitions charge a submission fee to the wineries. I presume that's like a large part of how those competitions survive and make money. How is it that the Pinnacle Awards generates enough money to sustain itself? Well, I would have to admit that it's not perfectly clear to me how we function either in so much as, you know, the outcome is at an awards banquet. Certainly people spend a significant amount of money coming to that awards banquet and it generates some income. But I think that it is not a highly profitable venture at all because nobody's charging anybody for this outcome or even to participate. I hope I'm not speaking out of school to say I doubt that it makes any money. I think it's more a labor of love. So I am curious, what trends do you think will shape the future of wine competitions? Or what would you like to see happen with wine competitions going forward in the future? I think that there's a lot of value to wine competitions having a regional focus. And I think those will continue to be useful to the consumer, to the wineries themselves whether it's a statewide competition in a place like Colorado or Missouri or New York, or whether it's a smaller regional area, whether Central Coast or Sonoma or Lodi or Mendocino or that sort of thing. And then I also believe that if you're going to not focus regionally, then you really do need to broaden. If not global, it should be countrywide or hemispheric-wide, where you get the best of the best to compete against each other. And you hopefully learn something about vintages, regions, and grapes. 
it sounds like you believe a clear value in smaller regional competitions to kind of shine light on the up and coming producers. And you think that that should be consistent and stay and keep happening. I do. I like those regional competitions. And I think that they have a different, obviously, different purpose than do the larger competitions. But it's sort of the in-between competition that I think is not necessarily helpful. To me, the in-between competition, in other words, one that doesn't really set a parameter. It says instead, we're just going to let people send in Chardonnay from all over the place. And that seems on its face a worthy goal. But if 80% of those Chardonnays come from a single state, how is that really an honest view of what Chardonnay can be across the globe, if that's in fact what they're purporting to offer? So without naming names, I think even some other competitions that attempt to do that are not necessarily providing the most level playing field, if you will. Having said that, there's nothing perfect about any of this. Perfection will always be the enemy of good. And if you can get enough examples from really good producers that it is at least a collection of extremely good wines, well, damn it, the outcome from that is damn valuable. And if 20 out of 100 wines won a gold medal in a situation like that, if the judges are good enough, that's good information. Go find at least one of those 20 wines. Thank you for diving so deep into wine competitions and the Pinnacle Wine Awards. We like to end each episode on a personal note, and we are curious, what was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year, and who did you drink it with? Well, it would be impossible for me not to talk about a tasting I did on Monday in Rioja at the Marques de Riscal. We started with the 1862, which is the very first bottle of Rioja commercially bottled. It was still alive. It was still good. It was remarkable. Having said that, I preferred the 1876 and the 1886, and I was seated next to my friend Pedro Ballestreros, master of wine, who is as knowledgeable of Spanish wine as anybody I know. And we got to taste a number of these wines, the most stunning of which was the 1945. I know this is crazy stuff when you talk to somebody about it and people say, oh my God, I'll never have a chance to taste that wine. And maybe you won't, but Rioja is not the most expensive wine out there. And even 1945 Rioja is certainly not going to set you back as much as famed wines like 45, let's say, Mouton or Cheval Blanc, which half of them out there are probably suspect or fraudulent anyway. So that was really amazing. And I was with a group of friends, people like Josh Reynolds and others that I've known for a long time, that we got to have all those wines together. It was amazing. It was really for me, just a remarkable experience. But I always have to say as well, sometimes having a humbler bottle of wine, but just able to have it with friends or family. My first granddaughter was born about four months ago. And so as soon as we could, we celebrated with a wine from the 1990 vintage, which is my daughter's birth vintage. And we popped open a J.J. Prune or Spätlese, because both my daughters just think J.J. Prim's pretty much walks on water. And just to have that with my family, while my daughter's, you know, trying to breastfeed a brand newborn, and that was really great. That's kind of what wine ought to be. As fascinating as a bunch of 19th century Ruaha was, it's having wine with people who love wine, hopefully as much as they love you and you love them. That's pretty cool. 
Well, I couldn't think of a better note to end the show on. Thank you for sharing both of those moments, especially the last one. I think it does show how the right bottle of wine with the right people can bring it all together. But we want to thank you for your time, Doug, and sharing all of your insights on wine competitions. We greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. And I appreciate your time as well. I certainly have to apologize for having a few tickles in my throat here while we were talking. But, you know, maybe it was the wine. Maybe it's just thinking about the wine got me going. Nonetheless, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.